Chapter 7 of Idela. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Taylor Winstead. Idela by Sarah Grand. Chapter 7. Idela's notions of propriety were altogether unconventional. She never could be made to understand that it was not the proper thing to talk familiarly to anyone she met and discuss any subject they were equal to with them. It is good for people to talk, and natural and therefore proper, she said. If I can give pleasure to a stranger by doing so, or he can give pleasure to me, it would not be right to keep silent. She carried this idea of her duty to her neighbor rather far sometimes. I remember her telling me once about two old gentlemen she had traveled with the day before. The sun came in and bothered me, and one of them offered to draw the blind, she said, and he remarked it was rather a treat to see the sun, we have so little of it now, and I said that was true, and told him how I pitied the farmers. I had to stay in my room the other day with a bad cold, and I amused myself watching one of them at work in some fields opposite. The state of his mind was expressed by his boots. On Monday the sun was shining, the air was mild, and it seemed as if we were going to have a continuance of fine weather, and the farmer appeared of a cheerful countenance, and his boots were polished and laced. On Tuesday there was an east wind, veering south with showers, and his boots were laced but not polished. On Wednesday there was frost, fog, and gloom, and they were neither laced nor polished. On Thursday there was a snowstorm, and he had no boots at all on, and after that I did not see him, and I wondered if he had committed suicide, in which case I thought the jury might almost have brought in a verdict of justifiable fellow to say. And when I told that story, the other gentleman shut his book and began to talk, too. And I said I thought the weather was much colder than it used to be, for I could remember wearing muslin dresses in May, and I could not wear them at all now. But I did not know if the change were in the climate or in myself, perhaps a little of both, though, indeed, I know that to a certain extent it was in the climate, which had been very much altered in different districts by drainage and cutting or planting, altered for the better, however, as, as a rule. And one old gentleman had heard that before, but did not understand it exactly, so I explained it to him, and then I talked about changes of climate in general, and the formation of beds of coal, and the ice period, and sunspots, and the theory of comets, and about my husband getting up to see the last one, and going out in a felt hat and dressing gown with a bed candle to look for it. And about that dream of mine, did I tell you? I dreamt the comet came into our drawing room, and the leg of a Chinese table turned into a snake and snorted at it, and the comet looked so taken aback that I woke myself with a shout of laughter. And then we talked of popular superstitions about comets and dreams and ghosts, particularly ghosts. And I told a number of creepy stories, and one old gentleman pretended he didn't believe in them, but he did, and so did the other without any pretense. And we talked about Darwinism and the nature of the soul and nihilism and the state of society, and and a few other things. And they were such dear, delightful old gentlemen, and they knew such a lot, and were so clever. And one of them was a railway director, and the other couldn't let his farms, and was bothered about his pheasants, and wanted to have the trains altered to suit him. I should so like to meet them both again. And how long did all this take, Idila? Oh, some hours. I fancy their dreams would be rather confused last night, she added naively. Poor old gentleman, said I. This sociability and inclination to talk the matter out, and, I may say, a certain amount of innocence and lack of worldly wisdom into the bargain, betrayed her occasionally into small improprieties of conduct that were not to be excused, and would possibly not have been forgiven in anyone but Idila. But such things were allowed in her as certain things are allowed in certain people, not because the things are right in themselves, 
but because the people who do them see no harm in them. There are people, too, who seem to enjoy the privilege of making wrong right by doing it. Society, however, only accords this privilege to a limited and distinguished few. When Idella saw for herself that she had done an unjustifiable thing, she was very ready to confess it. I always fancied she had some latent idea of making atonement in that way. It never mattered how much a story told against herself, nor how much malicious people might make of it to her discredit. She told all, inimitably, and with scrupulous fidelity to fact. One day she was standing waiting for a train at the station at York, and in her absent way she fixed her eyes on a gentleman who was walking about the platform. Presently he went up to her, and, without any apology or show of respect, remarked, "'I'm sure I've seen you before.' "'Probably,' Idela rejoined, as if the occurrence were the most natural thing in the world. "'But I do not remember you. Perhaps if I heard your name—' "'Oh, I don't suppose you ever heard my name,' he said. "'In that case I can never have known you,' she answered calmly. "'I never know anyone except by name. "'I suppose you are an Englishman?' "'Yes,' he said eagerly. "'I'm in the fifth—' "'Ah, uh, I thought so,' she interrupted placidly. Englishmen in the 5th and some other regiments are apt to have but the one idea, and that is, and that is a bad one. He looked at her for a moment, and then, hat in hand, he made her a low bow and left her without another word. I think he felt ill and went to have some refreshment, she added, when she told me. From what happened afterwards, I am sure that at the time she had no idea of the real significance of the position in which she found herself placed on this occasion. But, as a rule, if she did or said the wrong thing, she became painfully conscious of the fact immediately afterwards. Indeed, it was generally afterwards that she grasped the full meaning of most things. She was ready with repartee without being in the least quick of understanding. She had to think things over, and even then she was not sure to do the right thing next time. Mr. Graves is ten years younger than his wife, she told me once, and only fancy what I said one day. It was in his studio, and she was there. I declared a woman could have no sense of propriety at all who married a man younger than herself, that no good could possibly come of such marriages, and a lot more. Then I suddenly remembered, and you can't imagine my feelings. But what do you think I did? I went there the next year and said the same thing again exactly. End of chapter 7